14, chapter 14 of Romans, verse 13. I know nobody here ever had a judgmental spirit, but if you know somebody who does, let them know about this message, okay? Dealing with a judgmental spirit. Romans 14, verse 13. Paul is writing, it's the word of God. And he says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. If you've been saved for any length of time, you know by now that Christians love to fight. They love to fight over what we consider our deeply held beliefs. But the sad thing is, sometimes we fight over things that don't matter. Isn't that true? I want to share a preacher story, and I know it is. It's not truthful, but it's an illustration. There was a day when a man took a walk, and he came to a bridge. When he got to the middle of the bridge, he saw a man standing on the rail, obviously is about to jump. He realized the man was awful distraught, so the, the man walking says, Don't jump. I can help you. The man on the rail asked a question. How in the world can you help me? The first man replied with a question of his own. He says, are you a Christian? The man on the rail said, yes, I am. The man who had walked up there said, well, that's wonderful. So am I. Are you a Catholic? Are you a Protestant? Well, I'm a Protestant, the man on the rail said. So am I, the man who came up said. What, what kind of Protestant are you? Are you a Baptist? Are you a Methodist, a Lutheran, Presbyterian, or something else? The man on the rail said, well, I'm, I'm a lifetime Baptist. Praise the Lord, so am I. Well, let me ask you this. Are you a Northern Baptist or a Southern Baptist? Well, I'm a Northern Baptist, the man on the rail said. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist or a Northern Liberal Baptist? Oh, I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist. And the man walked up and said, man, that's amazing. So am I. So then he asked the man on the rail, are you a Northern Conservative Baptist fundamental or are you a Conservative Baptist reform? The man on the rail thought for a moment and then he said, well, my father raised me as a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed. The man standing there said, that's a miracle. So am I. Then he asked, 
Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Plains region? There's the end of the story, by the way, okay? <laughs> and the man on the rail said, oh, that's easy. My family has always been Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes region. Oh, man, he said, that's a miracle of miracles. I don't often meet a brother who shares my own heritage. One more question. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes Region Council of 1855, or are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes Region Council of 1872? The man on the rail didn't even have to think about that. He says, since the days of my great-grandfather, we have always been Northern Conservative Baptist Reform Great Lakes Region Council of 1872. After a small, short pause, the man looked up the man, the man on the street, looked up the man on the rail, and he cried out, Die, you heretic. And he pushed him over the rail. You'll get to the way home. And the reason we find a story, and we know that was a made-up story, I realize that, is because in a lot of ways, that's how some Christians live their lives. If you get two Christians to agree upon nine out of ten points, they'll usually focus on what they don't agree on. And in a lot of cases, the more insignificant that point is, the more likely they're going to end up arguing about it. I suppose it's simply human nature. And that human nature causes us to focus on the small things that really don't matter much at all. And we focus on those small things and we ignore the larger things. Didn't Jesus talk to the Pharisees about that? Yeah. And there's a danger in doing that. The longer I serve Christ, the longer I walk with God, I have discovered there are some things not worth fighting over. Something I thought were mountains at one time that needed to be conquered, I realized they weren't so important at all. So the question is, is there ever a good reason for a church battle? Yes, there are some good reasons. Now, for certain, if we are battling over the truth, his truth never changes. And his truth is worth 
fighting for. We're not going to take time to look at this tonight. I may preach a series on it later on. don't know just yet. But Jude wrote a short letter. One chapter. And he said, I began to write about the common salvation. But he saw something more urgent. And Jude began to address those who are drifting from the truth. Some things are worth fighting for. Justice is worth fighting for. Integrity is worth fighting for. Whenever we are battling whatever it is that's right, it is worth fighting for. There is a... I don't know how to put this. Since I'm free will Baptist, I'll speak about the free will Baptist, okay? There's a saying going that in the free will Baptist, the way we start new churches is by splitting. A group will get together, they get mad over something that doesn't matter, and they split. And usually one of those calls themselves United Free Will Baptist. And what they split over doesn't amount to hardly anything. We're living in a time where a lot of churches split over music style. How sad that is. Sometimes they split over the style of preaching. So sad. So remember, some things are worth fighting for. And my goal in this message tonight and Lord willing next Sunday night is to speak about some dangers of a judgmental spirit. And I want to remind you first of all and most of all when the church is fighting among itself over nothing, things that don't matter, there's a world going to hell. Isn't that true? And I know that the problem of a judgmental spirit certainly exists outside the church. I'm not talking about them. I'm addressing us. Those who name and claim the name of Christ as our Savior. And I can't speak for you, but I can, I identify, because I, I saw this at a time in my life. <clears throat> because I know there have been times I have a tendency to criticize people who don't say things or do things the way I think they ought to say them or do them. Now again, if they're going against the word of God and the truth of God, they're wrong. If I go against it, I'm wrong. Now I think it's important that we don't forget of the terrible things that can happen when we are too quick to offer personal judgments on other believers, now hear me well, who don't meet our personal standards. 
Now remember, I said personal standards. I have been there and done that. And I hope before we finish this particular part of our message, in the next week or so, that I can offer some good suggestions on how we can overcome the tendency, the impulses to criticize our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now the first thing I want you to realize, this problem is not isolated, and it's not new. In fact, without a doubt, it is an age-old problem. Way back in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 26 through 29, look what it says. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but they went out, I'm sorry, went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp the nerve of those guys. Notice verse 27. And there was a, there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and me, Dad, you prophesy in the camp. And then in verse 28, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, my Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So what's going on here? It is clear from the text that the Lord had placed his spirit on these two men, Eldad and Medad. Now the problem was, they hadn't joined the others at the tabernacle. They missed Sunday school that day. And these guys began to prophesy, and this surprised the assembly in the camp that somebody would send a messenger to Moses to say, Moses, you need to know what's going on. You need to know what's going on. And the Bible says that when Joshua heard the news, he couldn't believe it. He was so disturbed, he said, Moses, you need to stop this unofficial prophesying. Stop it. Now again, Moses, being the man of God that he was, he certainly correctly interpreted Joshua's concern. Concern for Moses as a unique character and mediator of God's blessings. But he called Joshua's hand. He chided Joshua. And he said, Joshua, I'm not going to stop them. In fact, he said, I wish that every one of God's people might share that kind of a measure of God's spirit with them. And Moses refused. 
Now, it's also interesting here, and Joshua needs to know this, and we need to know it. The fact of the matter is, Moses could not bestow the Spirit. Only God could. And the text clearly says that God put the Spirit on these two men. And so Joshua needed to understand that this was an act of God that was not related to Moses' presence. It was a work of God. But there was envy among some of the people there. In Mark chapter 9, look at verse 38 through 40. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And he followeth not us, and we forbade him. Because he followed not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. Now, I don't know for sure. And I'm convinced, you know, we know John is speaking here, but I think he's speaking for the apostles. And I think they were maybe a little bit proud of their actions. We've stopped somebody. Look what we've done. We forbade him to do it. But Jesus says, fellas, you're wrong. It was wrong for you to stop that man from casting out demons in my name. Now, by the way, I'm not sure what their attitude was. But what they needed to know is, they did not have a monopoly on God's power. They did not have a monopoly on that. So Jesus says, basically, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not against me, you're for me. Leave them alone. So it is an age-old problem. Churches have struggled with this for 2,000 years. And if you study the New Testament, especially the epistles, you find out for sure that the earliest Christians had difficulty accepting new or different people into their assemblies. And when Paul writes this epistle to the church at Rome, he devotes almost two chapters to this issue. How do we deal with those who are different than we? And here in Romans 14, <clears throat> we find, I think, very important truths about accepting other believers. And I think it's a word we need to hear. Let me give you a little bit of a background to what's going on here, the context. In Paul's day, Rome <coughs> was the center of the world. It was the capital of the Roman Empire. It's where the seat of the Caesars was. 
And without a doubt, you've heard it said, all roads, all roads lead to Rome. It was true in that day. Because all roads did lead to Rome. And what that means simply is that Rome had become a melting pot. Where people from many different cultures found themselves living together. As different groups from the different provinces came to Rome, they settled in the city. And before long, there was a complex mix of races and ethnic groups. And you add to that foreign slaves, prisoners of war who also lived in Rome. Quite a group of diverse people. When the gospel came to Rome, it crossed a lot of those racial and ethnic lines. And because of that, the church at Rome began to reflect the diverse makeup of the city itself. And I hope that helps us better understand why Paul would write what he wrote, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing to a growing church. He's writing to a church that is filled with a wide variety of people. And human nature, we spoke about this morning, being what it is, we shouldn't be surprised of the various groups in the church began having trouble getting along. If I understand Romans 14 correctly, there was conflict in four or five different areas. Number one, there were immature believers. Immature believers. We'll talk about that a little later on. There were Jewish believers. There were Gentile believers. Some were vegetarians. Some were meat eaters. I say amen. Some observed special days. Some would not observe special days. Some said it was okay to drink wine. Some said it's not okay to drink wine. Now, don't assume by that that there's, there are only two groups. That's not true in the church with these characteristics. And certainly, we have to realize there would have been a lot of individual believers who had different convictions on what was right and what was wrong. For example, if you had a, a new believer, 
or a believer who was uh, a Gentile before salvation. If you had a believer who was a vegetarian, uh, <clears throat> a Sabbath keeper. So, certainly there would be believers there who didn't neatly fit into just one or two neat categories. There was a variety of convictions among individual believers. Now, the fact that Paul addresses the issue in two chapters tells me they probably had a problem getting along. The meat eaters didn't trust the vegetarians. Now, I can kind of understand that. I'm kidding. If you're a vegetarian, that's fine. I'm not condemning that at all. The Bible doesn't condemn that. But they didn't trust each other. And the vegetarians were sure that these mediators were, were compromising. I mean, if you really lived for God, you wouldn't eat meat. That was their idea. And that was among the Gentiles, for the most part. And the Jews, who had been saved, they kept kosher. But the converted Gentiles said, you know what? That's a waste of time. There is no point in that. I preached a couple of messages a few months back on, on drinking. You know our stand at Freeville Baptist. But even then, <clears throat> there was one group said it's okay to drink as long as you don't get drunk. The other group said you're just using that you're using that as an excuse to get drunk to get a buzz. So they disagreed on that. So if you think the church at Rome was one big happy family, not true. Not true at all. They were anything but one big, happy family. Now, it was a family, all right, but it was far from happy. And that's the issue that Paul addresses, because Paul understands the conflict. He understands how they feel. Now, you need to remember, Paul was raised in Orthodox Judaism. He knew all about keeping kosher. He knew all about those strict dietary laws of the Old Testament. He knew what it was like to live under the law. And, and please don't misunderstand. Paul never badmouthed the law. Ever. And I, I think it's fair to say a lot of years went by in Paul's ministry when he struggled with those issues. We know Peter did. And so Paul understood the conflict. And so now he's writing a letter to Rome, to the church at Rome. And he simply says, you know what? I want to address the issue that I have dealt with that you are wrestling with now. So in this chapter, Paul gives three exhortations. The first one is simply this. 
Accept one another because God has accepted you. Look at the first four verses. Romans 14. Him that is weak in faith, receive ye him, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let him not that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Somebody say amen. And from the very first statement in Romans 14, we find the theme of this chapter. Receive him who is weak in faith. Receive him who is weak in faith. And the idea is here, said with, with, but not to doubtful disputations. What that means, in plain English, receive them without passing judgment on disputable matters. How many have learned, sometimes when you have an opinion, the best thing you can do is what? Keep it to yourself. How many have learned that sometimes when you think you have to say something? Don't. And that's the idea here. Receive them. And that, that receive them is a key word. And that means to welcome them. Welcome them who are weak in the faith. Welcome them. But not so you can argue with them or prove them wrong. Welcome them into the family. Another statement there that is kind of difficult to understand at first. Him that is weak in the faith. So I have to ask myself, well, who is weak in the faith and who is strong in the faith? Well, let me tell you something, folks. Every believer... How many know what the word every means? Each one of us are strong in some areas and weak in others. Isn't that true? Now, we don't want to admit that, but it's true. We are strong in some areas and we are weak in others. Now, think about this for a moment. When we think about a person's faith... And a person's faith is strong in an area where he or she can survive contact with sinners without falling into that pattern. If you can find yourself in that situation, in that contact, and you don't fall in that pattern, you're strong in that area. But when we know the area we are weak in, the area when our, when our faith is weak, then we must avoid certain activities. We must avoid certain people. 
We must avoid certain places if we're going to protect our spiritual life. Him that is weak. So Paul says to the church at Rome, I know there are some who are weak in their faith. But all of us are in some areas. So Paul says, receive that one who is weak in their faith, but don't pass judgment on them. And Paul mentions, King James says, doubtful disputations. And it really means disputes over doubtful things. And in this case, things like eating meat, things like keeping special days. So the whole idea is this. If the scripture does not give a clear command, a precept that says something is wrong, it's disputable. Paul says, don't get into tizzy over that. Don't split the church over that. So I look at this and I realize that kind of a statement that Paul makes here assumes that the church will contain difference of opinion. Now Pam and I have been married quite a few years now. She's older than I am, by the way. I made that up. And I just knew for sure once I married her, I could straighten her out. Guess what I found out? If I hadn't found out, we would still be married, okay? And so there are things we don't agree on. And there's things I've learned not to bring up. Men, are you there? (laughs) You know better. It's not worth the fight. Because they really don't matter. Now I want to remind you again what the Bible speaks, what Paul speaks about are, are not doctrines that are essential to salvation. But what Paul is talking about are discussions about differences of lifestyle. That's what he's talking about. So Paul says, I don't want you bickering and quarreling over Issues that are simply matters of opinion. How many has an opinion tonight? Yeah. Paul said, don't bicker over that. Don't quarrel over that. Now, by the way, the Bible doesn't say we're to be afraid of differences. doesn't say we're to avoid those things. But we're to accept the fact there's going to be differences and it needs to be handled with care. We're dealing with God's people here. And so what Paul is saying to us tonight and to them when he wrote that letter. We shouldn't expect everyone even within a local congregation like ours, to agree on every subject. It's not going to happen.
And whenever we take the time to try to understand their viewpoint, doesn't mean you agree with them. You don't have to. But we take the time through sharing ideas. The hope would be we could come to a full understanding of what does the Bible really say. Now, by the way, and I appreciate you so much tonight. I know you love God's word. And I don't think I'm wrong. I think all of us, for the most part, approach the Bible with a biased idea. Isn't that true? We have an opinion, and we're going to find at least one verse. Amen? That says we are right, and Paul Wheeler, you're wrong. I'm sorry. (laughs) Isn't that true? And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. So how do we approach the situation? I think we need to approach them uh, with acceptance. We ought to at least listen <laughs> and respect others. And we ought to pray that we don't allow a difference of opinion, notice the word opinion there, to cause division. Because diversity, even in opinions, can be a source of learning and also richness in our relationships. And I think the key here is, in that area of our lives, we need to use holy caution. Be careful. Every once in a while, Pam and I will have a, believe it or not, maybe a difference of agreement. And we'll come to the point, she'll say, you're right. I say, I'm always right. At least I think I am. But she reminds me that I'm not always right. And the same is true in the church. So I think a good, a good guideline for individual, for you and I as individuals is From time to time, we need to take a self-inventory of our lives. Discover where we are weak in our faith and where we are strong. Make sure we know who we are and where we are in our strengths and our weaknesses. And a great principle is this. When we're, we're in doubt, we need to ask this question. Can I do that, whatever it is, can I do it without sinning? Can I do that without Sinning. Can I do that and influence others for good? Rather than being influenced by them. Can I do that without sinning? And that's, I think, a starting point. But self-inventory in itself is not enough. We need the kind of intimate spiritual relationships with at least a few other believers. Believers who we know will accept us, and yet they're not afraid to tell us the truth about the strength, our weaknesses, 
in our lives. When they see it in our lives. It's been quite a few years ago now. And I don't remember all the circumstances, but I remember going through a difficult time in my spiritual life. I was still going to church. I was still reading my Bible. Uh, Probably teaching a Sunday school class at that time. I've taught for too many years. I've forgotten how many. But one morning I came to church and a brother handed me a note. One that loved me dearly. One that knew me intimately. Spiritually I'm talking about, of course. And he knew something was wrong. And he simply said, Brother Rollins, I don't know what it is, but you're struggling right now. And I want you to know I'm praying for you. (laughs) Only the Lord knows how important that was to me. He knew that I was missing the mark. I wasn't where I should have been. And he didn't come with a judgmental spirit. He came with an attitude, I love you. And I want to encourage you. And he did. A word of wisdom changed my life. When we think about the areas of strength in our lives, we should not be afraid in those areas of our life where we're strong to be defiled by the world. And in those areas where we're strong, we're to go out and we're to serve God. We're to serve God. But in areas of weakness, I don't care who you are, we need to be careful. Especially when you come to a time in your life when you think you can stand. What did the Bible say about that? Be careful when you think you stand. Lest you fall. That's happened to a lot of Christians who thought they were strong in every area. So in areas of weakness, we have to be careful. And in the context of the letter to Rome, whenever Jews became Christians... And we can understand this, I hope we can, that many would still be concerned about the proper preparation of food according to the Mosaic Law. And a lot of those restrictions under the law would make it impossible for Jews and Gentile believers to sit down and have a meal together. Some said, we can eat anything. Everything. Others said, no. The weak could only eat vegetables. Now again, we're all weak in some areas. But the weak in this context is speaking primarily of immature faith that hasn't developed to the strength it needs to stand against external pressures. I remember shortly after I was first saved, 
Uh, my grandmother happened to be up here visiting with her daughter, my mother. And she, in her wisdom, and my grandmother was wise beyond her years of spiritual stuff. Didn't have much formal education at all. But she says to me, she said, son, I'm concerned that your dad's attitude is going to have an effect on you. You know why she came to me? She knew I was still immature in my faith. And she knew that <clears throat> a lot of time when you're first saved, your pressure comes from your own family. First of all, they don't believe it really happened. That Christ makes a difference. And a lot of times that's where the pressure comes from. And my grandmother realized I was immature in my faith and she was concerned. And so as Paul is writing this letter, the danger that he realized was that the meat eaters would look down with contempt on the vegetarians and the vegetarians would condemn the meat eaters. And may I give us a word of caution? Let's don't fall in that trap. Let's don't fall into that trap. Look at the last part of Romans 14, verse 3. For God has received him. Hold on, folks. If God has received someone, what right do we have to reject them? If God has welcomed them, should we not welcome them as well? Now, folks, I confess, there was a time in my life I was ready for battle, for anything. If you don't agree with me, you're wrong. But I'm glad that God, through His Spirit, has mellowed me a little bit. Now, I haven't backed down on the truth of God's Word. And I'll never back down on that. But there's things that I once thought was worth fighting for. God convinced me they are not. So how in the world, since God receives them, how can I not welcome them? How can I despise or condemn someone when God doesn't despise them or condemn them? He welcomes them. And we can never forget as Christians... We belong to the greatest family on earth. But in that family, there's diversity. And like it or not, there are different opinions. Now again, I'm talking about opinions, not the truth of God's word. So we have to remember our corporate status as believers. We've all been forgiven and saved by Christ. Amen. Every one of us. And I have to remember that God is still working on me, so I know He's still working on other believers. God accepts people that some of us might think are unacceptable because they have different opinions than we do. And Paul addresses both groups, and he does it in love. And both groups 
are acting according to their consciences. But here's the bottom line. Even our honest opinions don't need to be rules for the church. Amen. In Acts 15, Paul travels back to Jerusalem. I know what time it is, Ella. I'll quit in a minute, I promise. And there were different opinions. And when Paul came back, he had a letter. And the consensus of the Jerusalem Council was simply this. In essentials, there has to be unity. In non-essentials, there has to be liberty. But in both the essentials and the non-essentials, there has to be love. Let's stand together. It's interesting. Paul says, who are we to reject someone God's accepted? And he goes on to tell us, God will make them stand. I don't care who you are, if you're immature in your faith or strong in your faith. We can't stand alone. We stand only in Christ. Amen. Don't forget...